We find our Bible reading on our sheet. It comes from Titus chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, do you want to have those verses handy in front of you? Um, it's, good, it's good to see that the teaching is, um, is not being made up you know, on the spot, but actually is formed around the Bible, comes from the Bible. And um, you know, I, I always say that when, when it comes to preaching, particularly at Foundation Church, the, the, the point and purpose of the sermon is the point and purpose of the verses that we're reading, and that's where we take our cue from. And that's what we're going to hopefully see this morning. Um, Titus 1, coming into land now actually, Titus, sorry, Titus 3 verses 1 through to 7. Um, Andrew's on next week, is that right? Are you doing 8 to 12 or 9 to 12? What are the, 8, okay. We might borrow a bit of 8 today, but um, that's okay. Um, Andrew's going to be preaching uh, next week, so that's one less point for you to do next week. There you go. Um, and we've been seeing over the course of this study um, these two main sort of themes coming through. Uh, learn the truth and live the truth. Or in other words, uh, get the truth straight and allow the truth to shape you. And that seems to be the, 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 the core sort of message here in this letter. And uh, Paul applies this to the church uh, through uh, elders and then through, uh, you know, leaders and, and, and responsibilities within the church itself. And he sort of uses last week then this um, household code, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this household code, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and how they're to relate to one another, learning the truth and getting the truth uh, straight, uh, living the truth. Uh, and so this week, then, we, we sort of go to another sort of sphere beyond that, you know, even, even broader still. And we're looking at how, how uh, believers in Jesus should act in the world. And so that's going to be our, our theme, really, for today. How should we act in the world? And um, we've got actually four points, four headings that we'll look at these verses under. Uh, the first is how we're supposed to act in the world. Um, the second is how we used to act in the world. The third thing we'll see is how God himself acted in the world. And then fourthly and finally, we'll see the basis for our actions in the world. Okay, so it's all about how do we, you know, interact with, with what's going on around us. Um, still a bit tight. See your lovely faces. How should we act in the world? Um, how should we, in other words, be, be citizens? 
Um, yes, we're all about church, we're all about the kingdom of God, but how do we, how do we bring that into the other uh, realm that we live in, which is the world? And I think this is a very timely message, if I don't say so myself. Uh, the background um, that we've been seeing over the weeks is, 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 is uh, the, the society, uh, the culture in Crete, the island, the Greek island that this uh, letter was, was sent to, um, is not necessarily a very great place. Um, it's quite an unruly place to, to be in. Um, they have a reputation for being quite rebellious individuals, for being lazy, uh, for being drunkards, addicted to much wine. Um, we see that time and again. Pretty wild in general. And that seems to be uh, the way that people just behaved ordinarily. But Paul again writes here, and we see this in the first uh, section that we're going to be looking at today through verses 1 and 2. He writes to uh, tell Titus, the, the sort of young church leader looking after the churches in Crete, Remind them, that is, remind the churches how to act in the world. Remind them. You know, they've heard this already, uh, but they need to remember that Christians, people who follow Jesus and say they believe in him, say they have a Christian faith, they live by different rules to everybody else. And so therefore, in some ways or other, the Christian is somebody who, who spends their lives uh, swimming against the current, we could say. Uh, and that, 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 that comes with the territory. That's That's ordinary. Um, you will experience that when you come to faith in Jesus. You'll be swimming against the tide. Uh, and uh, the church, as, as indeed I'm sure many of you have heard these things before, but, but we're going to take Paul's recommendations here to remind one another, remind ourselves of the life that we should be living. And so let's look at those details, first of all. How should we be in the world? How we should act in verses 1 and 2. He says, remind them, that is the churches, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay, this is not just necessarily talking about leaders within the church. This is more broadly, uh, Paul is talking about rulers and uh, uh, those in authority in the civic society. So specifically, we're talking here about politicians. Boo. We're talking about lawmakers. Boo. We're talking about law enforcement. Uh, you know, and, and particularly in their context, any sort of Roman delegates, of course, um, we're, we're reading of, a, of a, a group of people here who are under the, the leadership, I suppose, or, or the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so all these individuals, Paul says, when we look at them, we don't boo them, uh, like what I've just been doing in a pantomime, um, but we are to recognize their authority, says Paul, and we're to come under their authority. He writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 13, he sort of outlines this idea that God's authority is in some ways delegated to the governing authorities in, in various times and in various places. Um, Paul writes that you know, the, the governors and, and, and leaders of our, our nations and of our societies are appointed by God to, to lead people. They're not perfect. They're not the church. We get that. But they are his means of exercising law and order, justice and fairness and equality for all people. We may not necessarily agree with specific policies. We may not necessarily agree with the ideology that underpins many decisions. We may not like them as personalities. But Paul says we are called to recognize their God-given rule over us. We're to give ourselves to following them and obeying them, providing it doesn't require us to sin in the process. Uh, don't forget, in contrast to that, as we're, as we're learning, as I've hinted at already, uh, we're dealing with a very rebellious and disrespectful society uh, in Crete in those days. This is a hard message for the people of the Cretan church to swallow. 
Um, Paul goes on, though, submissive to rulers and authorities in verse 1. He goes on and says uh, that to be also obedient, law-abiding citizens, and and they're to be ready for every good work. We saw this last week. Glenn sort of teased this out for us as he was preaching uh, from verses 14 through to 15. Be ready for every good work. You know, ready meaning poised, prepared, like like a sprinter, you know, lining up on the track, ready to, ready to fire on, ready to go. We're, we're to, like, likewise, we're to be looking for opportunities, says Paul, in society, in the world around us, to do good works, whatever they may be. We'll, we'll see uh, later on in verse 8, we're to be devoted to good works. And so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be dragging our heels when it comes to, should I be good to my neighbor or not? You know, should I go and help that person or not? Should I give to this cause or not? He says we're to be ready, poised, on the front foot. We're to be excellent citizens. And he carries on and says, we are to speak, in verse 2, evil of no one. We're to avoid quarreling. We're to be gentle. We're to show perfect courtesy to all people. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be lovely if all of our society was, was living by these rules? Um, imagine the sort of place it, it could be. That would be wonderful. Uh, in our general interactions, says Paul, with other people, uh, no matter where they are, in whichever context you find themselves, we are to be showing perfect courtesy to all people. I suppose we could put Paul's words on, on flip it around in some ways, you know, rather than speaking evil of no one, we could say, look, we're to only speak good of people. We're to only speak positive things of other people. Um, we're, to, we're to build them up with our words. And if we can't do that, we remain silent. That will make you a great citizen. That will make you a great employee, a great co-worker. Um, I, I realize that some of these things are going to be more difficult for some of us than others, depending on your makeup and your, you know, uh, your, your um, experiences and so forth, maybe even your politics and the way that you see the world. It will be more difficult for some than others. Some of us can sort of slot in fairly easily with these things that Paul is talking about. Others may struggle a little more. That's... Uh, part of the, the variety of humanity. Some people just love, though, getting into ding-dongs on Twitter, you know, the comment section on Belfast Live. They just cannot help themselves. Maybe that's what, you're one of those people. I hope not, but that might be you. People just love wading into controversy where it doesn't concern them. In terms of what the Apostle Paul says to us here, no, he says, don't do that. Don't be one of those people. Love people, he says. Uh, pull back from quarreling. Show perfect courtesy. What does that look like for you? Perfect courtesy. Not like courtesy when you feel like it, but all the time. Perfect. Full. Complete courtesy. And, and one of the reasons why I think it's a very timely message for us uh, today as a church is because we, you know, we, as a people, we've always had this tendency, haven't we? That's, that's, that just, you know, that's one of the things that's sort of been built with us. But I think it just, just feels like it's getting more and more heightened as these, these few years are progressing. I just think it's getting more and more, um, uh, yeah, toxic in some ways. Uh, we see more people reacting very quickly, rebelling very easily, sort of unfiltered thought and words just getting splurged out, whether that's on social media or some other platforms. It just seems to be getting, I feel, worse. Uh, whether it's moaning and groaning about Brexit or Stormont, COVID, politics, you know, on a local or national or even an international level, 
We see this all the time. Probably in the future, our next thing will be a united Ireland and, and you know, everybody arguing and bickering about that. This hardening and vitriol seems to be growing. And, and what, what often happens is that we, we, when, when we're dealing with some opposing view that we find uh, unpalatable, we don't agree with, whatever, what we tend to do is just demonize the opposition. We just think of the worst possible way to represent their views. Uh, we attack that. You know, we try and crush debate. We rage against what we consider to be you know, obvious evil in the world, uh, stupid leaders, ignorant leaders, whatever it happens to be. I'm not saying that there aren't stupid, ignorant, and evil leaders out there. Of course, there are. We know that all too well. But what we're dealing with here is our reaction to those things. But just let me be clear as well before we, before we move on from this little section. Paul is not calling us to benign coexistence. Just, just, you know, going around with our heads down. Neither is he calling us to go out and, you know, flee to the hills, everybody, and form a little commune out there, a little you know, kibbutz or something like that. We just get to live off-grid and on our own. That's not what he's calling us to. But what he is saying here to us and to you today is that how you act in, in the world, out there, um, has what we could describe as missiological and eschatological bites to it. Okay, in other words, it means that how you live and act in the world will point to Jesus and will point to the community that Jesus is forming, which is the church, his people, so let me ask you, as, as we just allow these words to stir us a little bit, I wonder, how, how are you handling this challenge? How are you doing with these things that Paul is, is calling us to here? Are, are you what could be described as a model citizen, a great employee, etc.? What about your talk online? Maybe you've even got an anonymous you know, login or something so no one knows it's really you. Um, does your speech, does your writing, do your comments adorn the gospel, make much of Jesus, or does it have the other effect? Is there something that you need to maybe repent of as you hear these words and hear this high bar that Paul is, is calling us to? So that's how we should act in the world, and there's plenty there to go home and reflect on, I think. The second thing then we'll see in this text is how, how we used to act in the world. Okay, there, there's a sort of past tense. Yes, we are called to live uh, distinct and virtuous lives. Yes, we're called to be countercultural, you know, to use modern jargon. But this alone, if, if you just set out your life to live like that alone, just try really hard to be a great citizen or a great co-worker on your own steam, that will lead to a sense of pride, a sense of superiority within you. You know, if, if it's just about moral living and good works, um, then the opposite effect can happen if, if we're not careful. What do I mean by that? I mean that if, if, if good works and good living um, make you feel good and make you feel better than other people who can't live as morally uh, good lives as you can, if that's how it makes you feel, if that's what good works do to you, then they're not truly good works because ultimately you're working for yourself. You're doing good works to make yourself feel and look better. Not because you really care about the thing you're doing. See what I mean? You're not making God look good, you're making yourself look good. And that's why Paul, I think, then reminds us in these next few, or this next verse, in verse 3, uh, how we used to act in the world. I just find this incredible. Look at verse 3. He says, For 
We ourselves, he counts himself in this. This is how we know it's applying to us, not just to the Cretans. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating others and hating one another. We used to be like this, says Paul. As believers in Jesus, this is how you used to be. It's an ugly list. And so before we go on getting self-righteous and proud about how good and moral our living could be, Paul seems to suggest that we have to remember what we used to be like. We used to be like this, he says. There was a time in the past when you were just like everybody else. No better. Why does he say this? What's the point of, 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 of drawing these things up? Well, he's not trying to produce guilt. You know, he's not trying to produce false guilt in you. He's not trying to, to help you dwell on your past sins. But what he's trying to do is protect your motivations when it comes to good works in the world. Um, he's aware, isn't he, that the, that the focus on living good and beautiful lives uh, on your own steam can produce proud and arrogant people. Uh, people who look down at others. People who become snooty or patronizing. And so he says... To believers in Jesus, remember where you've come from. Remember who you used to be. That will keep you humble when you are doing good works. And if you think about that, then the way you live and the way you act means that you're therefore free to prove yourself. You're free to, uh, from the need to prove yourself. You're free from the need to earn respect. You're free from the need to gain traction in society. I think this is important. I just want to label this a little more, um, if that's okay. I don't, I don't want us to be misled as we, as we read this. It's important for us to remember that Christians are just ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds, and yet they have experienced the transforming work of God in their lives. So it's important for us to understand that Christians are not just like a group, group of nice people, nice religious people. In fact, no, Paul is very clear. He says Christians begin just like everybody else, as ordinary people uh, who have brokenness, who are sinful, who are messed up, all those things in verse 3. And the reason why this is important for us to understand is that we cannot allow ourselves to think or believe the lie that we are too sinful, that we have too much of a history that God cannot get over or cannot you know, turn his eye from, that we are too messed up for God. That's a, that's a lie. For we ourselves were once like this, says Paul. The difference for the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian sees all that and accepts the good news and takes it into heart. And so here's the point. Don't, don't, don't think that you're an outsider uh, to the Christian faith because of your past. Don't think that somehow you don't fit in because you're not a good moral person. That's, that's the point. None of us are. In fact, church is a place of grace. It's a place where the transforming work of Jesus is, is demonstrated. And it's beautiful. We see his power at work in us. Okay, so we've, we've thought about um, how we should act in the world, being great citizens. It's a high calling. Uh, we thought briefly there about how we should act in the world. 
sorry, how, how we used to act in the world, verse, verse 3. Uh, but then we come to this sort of like high point, really, in this whole text, verses 4 through 7, how God acted in the world. Uh, turning, turning Christian, deciding to become a Christian, whatever it is you want to say, uh, is not just simply a decision to live a better life and just hope that you can do a better job than you used to do. Uh, people who think that's what Christianity is all about fall away. If it's just a sort of turning, turning over of the leaf and a, a moral sort of uh, change, then, then there's no power in that. It's not enough. Verse 3 is a pretty depressing place, as we've been seeing. It's a pretty ugly picture that Paul paints for our lives before Jesus. And yet in verses 4 through to 7, he sort of opens the curtains and allows the light of the goodness of the good news to flood in. I think these verses are some of the most wonderful gospel verses in the whole Bible. That's my opinion, anyway. Uh, where, where does that come from? Well, we can see in verses 4 through 7 that despite living in this place in verse 3 and how you know, pretty ugly and, and, and dark it all was, God acted, God entered in, God came down. Let's, let's, let's look at these verses together and just open our hearts to, to, to what they say. Um, it says in, in verse 4, but, but, you know, this, you're in the gutter, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, right? God appeared, that's what the, the, the Greek word behind that is, uh, is where we get our word for epiphany from, an appearance, a dramatic sort of entering onto the scene. God dramatically entered onto the scene, and then it says, he saved us. This is the, in the Greek, this is the, the headline. This is the, the controlling verb, right? This is the thing that, that dominates the rest of the sentence. This is the focus of God's actions. He saved us. He took the initiative. And then Paul underlines, just to be clear, he says, not because of, of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, not, not because of good works and stuff that you've done and moral living and, and giving to charity and all that, wonderful as those are. But that's not the thing that, that, that caused God to move. But he says it was according to his own mercy. Another translation of the Bible puts it like this. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He's saying here that God chooses to show his grace, his favor, his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his devotion to you. Because that is the kind of God that he is. That's what's in his heart for you. You know, I don't love my daughter because she does good things for me and to me and therefore has won my love. I love her because she is my daughter. I love her because I love her. And in a million ways, that is more true and rich and total when it's applied to God. And this is how he applies his, his mercy, his love to you. He says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is how it comes to you. By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. He gives you a good bath. The washing of regeneration gives you a new life. You go from death to life when the Holy Spirit comes to you. The old is gone. The new is here. That's what regeneration means. New life. That's how the mercy of God comes to you. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
It's ongoing, progressive, working in and working out and going deeper and moving further forward and growing stronger. That's what he does. Amen. And he pours out this Holy Spirit. Look at this. Just piles on all these terms. Richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's Pentecost Sunday, last Sunday. And, um, you know, just celebrating, or churches do celebrate anyway, uh, the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And that's what he's picking up here, isn't it? This pouring out of the Holy Spirit lavishly, not half-hearted hesitation from God is this pouring, this, this lavish giving of the Spirit through Jesus. So God has appeared, he's saved us, he's washed us, he's renewed us, he's given us, given us new life, he's poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus. What is the result? The result is in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's actions, his saving work, his grace, says Paul, is all upon you. And when that happens, you are declared righteous, you're, you're justified. You're, in other words, you're, you're standing rightly in front of God. And now he says you're an heir of the great things yet to come. Again, Glenn picked up on some of these things last week. The great hope that we have. Victory in Jesus the new age to come. Who deserves this kind of treatment? Who deserves it? Because in verse 3, we're all foolish, disobedient, led astray by various passions and pleasures, according to Paul. So I know that I don't deserve the grace of God, and I'm pretty sure you don't deserve the grace of God, and no one in this building deserves the grace of God. But that's just the point, isn't it? Who will love us in such a way? Surely it's only God, a God of grace and love. I came across this interview with Bono, the lead singer of U2, a few years ago. And uh, he, he, it's, it's in a, a book that was written um, in 2006. And the, the interviewer says that I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started in thinking and acting like a father. What do you make of that? And Bono replies, he says, yes, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. The interviewer says, I haven't heard about that. Um, Bono replies, I really believe that we've moved out of the realm of karma and into one of grace. The interviewer says, well, that doesn't really make it clearer for me. Bono says, well, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, every physical law uh, is met by an equal or opposite uh, reaction. It's clear to me, he says, that karma is the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news, indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer says, I'd be interested to hear about that. Bono says, that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't accept my excuses, but I'm holding out for grace. 
I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Bono seems to understand grace better than many of us. He understands it's not about works done in righteousness. He says there at the end, doesn't he, I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. So this is how you receive. This is how you, you come under God's grace, how you stand in it. You let go of your own efforts to win his love. That's how you do it. When you look at what he did and, and how Jesus came for you, when you say, I need it, I want that, I trust that what you did was for me, that's how you receive and stand in the grace of God. So we've thought about how we should act in the world. We've thought about how we used to act in the world, how God acted in the world, and thirdly, or sorry, fourthly and finally, then our basis for actions in the world. As we said at the start, all along in this letter, it's been about getting the truth straight and allowing the truth to shape us. You know, in other words, get our doctrine, and that should come out in our doxology. That is our, our praise, our worship, our, our response. One flows from the other. And Paul reminds us in verse 8, it's not on your sheet. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There it is again. What Paul is saying is that this, this, this is a sound overview of the saving work of God that we've just been reading. He said this is something you can build your lives on. It's something that the elders should be teaching. Uh, back, we saw this a few weeks ago, back in chapter 1. This is something that the church should be understanding and living out, according to chapter 2. This is a trustworthy saying. The grace of God. Just to be super clear, by the way, in case you get confused. Um, it's, we've been saying this already. It's not the grace, sorry, it's not the good works by you, God's grace. We've been seeing that in verse 5. But God's grace shows itself in your good works. God's grace um, flows into a life lived for him. Grace and works are connected, but the order is essential. Don't flip them around. Good works can't buy grace. Um, which is bad news, isn't it, for people who think they can please God on their own good behavior. You can't. It's bad news for people who think they can, because they now have grace, they can believe, they can behave in any way they want. They can't either. That's why we talk here about being a community on mission at Foundation Church. Uh, because we want to talk about and, and feast and enjoy God and his grace together on communities. It's the fabric of, of, of who we are. It forms us. But we say we're a community on mission. And our mission is to show that grace at work. It's to demonstrate it. It's to invite others to come in and enjoy it with us. It's to, to participate in it themselves, to come and swim in the ocean of God's grace. That's why five and a bit years ago we planted Foundation Church because we want to be all about God's grace to us. That's why we're part of Advance because we want to do the best we can to plant and strengthen other churches that, that, that also talk about God's grace and share the message of grace 
further than we could possibly do on our own. So with that in mind, let me uh, challenge you with this as we close out. How are you devoting yourself to good works? How are you loving your neighbor? Maybe it starts with you showing perfect courtesy to all people. Um, maybe you have been sort of caught asleep at the wheel and you need to wake up and be ready for every good work, every opportunity to serve. What are these opportunities? Um, just, just in brief. Um, they're going to be different, aren't they, for each person? So I'm not going to give you one, two, three opportunities that you can, you can follow. They are many and unique to each of us. Um, our opportunities for good work can, can begin with very simple everyday acts of kindness and, and just engaging with other people around us. It's not hard. There's thousands of those opportunities every week. You can take them. Uh, it might begin there, but it can be right through to large kingdom movements as well. Good works. Anything that, that we bring the grace of God with us in word and deed um, to share with those around us. Um, is, is, is really summed up in this idea of good works. So where do you stand? God enters, God saves, and we demonstrate that through our lives and our works. Let's pray.